When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I'd love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about various aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of all of my interviews, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month and a monthly advanced read and pre-publication author chat. For those on Facebook, I host a special Patreon Facebook group where we all chat books. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am chatting with Michelle Hunovan about Search. Michelle is the author of four other novels, Round Rock, Jamesland, Blame, and Off Course. Her books have been New York Times Notable Books and finalists for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award. She is a recipient of a Whiting Award for Fiction, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and a James Beard Award for Feature Writing with Recipes, and received her Master's in Fine Arts from the Iowa Writers' Workshop. She teaches writing at University of California, Los Angeles. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast. Welcome, Michelle. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you so much for having me, Cindy. I'm so glad you're here. I just loved your book. It was so fresh and unique and hilarious at times. I just really, really enjoyed it. Well, I wrote it for people like you who appreciate it. I know that the thought of reading a whole book about a church search committee may not sound like the most adventurous novel you've ever picked up. Well, actually, I was completely enthralled because I thought I've definitely never read a book about a year in the life of a church search committee. So (laughs) I was curious to see what that was going to be like. And then from page one, I just loved the format. I thought that was so clever the way that you did that. Oh, thank you. So before I ask you a bunch of questions about all of that, why don't you give me a quick synopsis of search for those that won't have read it yet? Search is about a a church search committee looking for their new minister. It's narrated by a woman named Dana Patowski, who is a restaurant critic who was once a ministerial candidate, or she went to seminary for a few years thinking she would be a minister. So there's a big food element in the book because she is a restaurant critic and a food writer, but she's also very 
intrigued with the ministry as she's always been and very intent on finding her church the best new minister possible. So where did you come up with the idea for this one? Well, the first glimmer of an idea for this book I had was when I was on a search committee just for an assistant minister. It was a short search. And the way that you begin evaluating the candidates is by something called a ministerial record, which is like a a long CV where they not only like list the, the candidates, not only list their education, but they also answer certain narrative questions like, what what is your biggest triumph? What is a mistake you've made? And what have you done about it? Talk about your call to ministry. So there were these narrative answers. And, you know, being a novelist who loves narrative, I got really intrigued by the different voices that I heard and how much people revealed, even perhaps when they didn't know how much they were revealing. So that was my, that was my first inkling that I had something novelistic going. And my second inkling came when we had found someone that we were all very enthusiastic about. We didn't have a contentious group. We very quickly settled on someone that we all liked. But then we heard that there was something going on with this candidate, and we had to go deeper into references and talk to a neutral reference. And some things came out that then made it untenable, some ethical lapses that made it untenable for us to select this candidate. And then I thought, boy, this is like detective work, because you start with how someone presents themselves, and then you go deep and then deeper to try and find, you know, the hidden self. And if that's not novelistic, I don't know what is. I was, I was hooked. Absolutely, because people do present themselves so differently than they often are. And not even intentionally sometimes. It's just a matter of how you put your face forward versus what you're actually doing. Exactly. Exactly. It's it's a lot like dating. Exactly. <laughs> it made me think uh, I had served not even on the committee, but I was part of a larger group that then sat in on all the interviews when my school was looking for a new head of upper school. And so it made me think a little bit about that, that, you know, you've got these criteria and you know your student body. And then you're sitting in on some of these interviews thinking, hmm, on paper, they looked great. I'm not so sure here in person that person's going to be the right fit. It made me think a little bit about that. Yes, exactly. And I, I'm hoping that anybody who's been on a committee will find something to relate to in this book. Well, and, and thankfully, my committee members were not like your committee members in the book because <laughs> that might have uh, made me pull my hair out. But that part was the part that was the most entertaining was putting together this very different group of people. And the two things that really stuck with me were the difference in generations and what they focused on. The younger people thought certain things were important and the older people thought different things were important. And then also that what people say they're looking for is often very different than what they're actually looking for. I think that that's absolutely right. I think that the issue between the generations is that the young people weren't so much looking for something so, well, I guess they were looking for something different, but they they thought that they were solving the problems for the first time, you know, putting putting a woman in the pulpit or putting a young person who was more performative in the pulpit than a stodgy old preacher who just preached and led hymns. 
they thought that they were going to solve that problem, whereas the older people thought that they had solved the problem of what made a good minister. And they couldn't ever quite meet and talk about the issues themselves. They were too busy fighting uh, their generational fight. Exactly. And I think the younger people don't really understand that in addition to standing in the pulpit, there are many other things that a minister does. And then the older people are thinking, well, we know how things go. You need to listen to us. And so, yes, there was no kind of middle ground. Let's meet and try to work through some of these issues. Right, right. And then I just loved where you had the congregation was surveyed and they said certain things. But then when they were presented with candidates, what they chose was vastly different than what the survey results showed. Exactly. They say they wanted a, a woman in the pulpit, but when they were they were offered, you know, a, a fiery African American preacher, they were, you know, a male. They they completely forgot that they wanted a woman. I guess people just revert to what they're used to. I don't know. I thought a lot about that after I read that portion of your book because I think that plays out all the time. But it's just kind of curious as to why. Yeah, I think um, probably it's as basic as people don't really know what they want. Well, that's true, too. Mm -hmm. Well, who is the easiest character to write and who was the most difficult? Hmm, that's a really good question. I think that Dana, the narrator, was the easiest because she's the most like me of any of the characters I've ever written in any of my uh, five novels or four other novels. So I kind of had fun writing her and giving her uh, traits and and possessions that I always wanted. For example, she has two mini donks, two mini donkeys. Uh, my husband and I go round and round. We have a big piece of property. I've always wanted a pair of mini donks, and he's against it. He won't go for anything bigger than a goat, but we don't have goats either. <laughs> um <laughs> So things like that were really fun. Or And I gave her a staff job at the newspaper. I was always a freelancer. So I just gave her, you know, slightly enhanced life that I never, you know, quite got to lead. So she was, she was pretty easy to write. And some of the other characters kind of wrote themselves, like Jenny, the sort of stubborn, outspoken, young member of the committee who's very kind of charismatic to other young people and very abrasive to older people. She was a constant source of surprise of surprises. I had no idea what she would say or do next. Sometimes I would I would just laugh out loud at what she did. She was so kind of predictably Jenny. She was so much fun to read and I loved how Dana was always commenting on her wardrobe. On, on Jenny's wardrobe. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, Jenny was, has a lot of tattoos and wore probably less clothes than a middle-aged church-going woman would approve of. And I just laugh because I have teenagers. And so I think that's an ongoing battle with generations looking at the next generation and thinking they probably need to be wearing more clothes than they are. So it just, I got a kick out of that. I could definitely mm -hmm. uh, feel what Dana was going through. Yeah, that's funny. Well, what about the format? Did you always structure it where it was going to be a memoir written by Dana, or did you start out with a different format? How did all of that come about? Uh, that's interesting. I, I didn't start out quite like that, but it very quickly became Dana's memoir uh, with recipes. 
I have always wanted to write a novel with recipes. Uh, way back in the 90s, I won a James Beard Award for feature writing with recipes. And for some reason, that little bit with recipes always cracked me up because in one way, it, it's kind of it's kind of a pulled punch. It's kind of like, this is a feature, but it has recipes. Like it almost makes it seem less serious. And at the same time, it also seemed like a little bonus. This is a, this is a feature and it has recipes. So I kind of, it always, it always amused me. And I always kind of wanted to write a novel with recipes. So, uh, the idea of Dana, who is, a food writer who has written a series of memoirs with recipes, I decided that that this would this would be her next book. She's in the beginning of the novel, she's casting around for an idea of what to write next. She's just finished book tour for her latest. And the search at her church comes up and it's a year long and that seems to give it a good tidy structure, you know, a year in church life. And it has a it has a kind of mystery element. Who is the new minister going to be? So that gave it some propulsion. And Dana had absolutely no idea what she was getting into. Not really. She <laughs> really did not. And the interesting part was every single person surprised her in some way. It wasn't just like the people that she expected that something might go awry with them, but every single person went in a different direction than she originally assumed they would. And I loved that. Oh, thank you. In my experience in church committees, I'm I'm always I'm always a little nervous at every matriculation, you know, every new class I take, every new committee I join, and I, you know, go into the room and I sit with other people and I look around and like my narrator Dana, when I get scared, I get critical. And so I look around and I think, who are these people and why am I here? And are they, are they interesting? Are they enough like me? And, and I'm sort of like doubtful. But then people start talking and, you know, you realize that you're, you're among <laughs> often, especially among Unitarians, you're really among some interesting individuals. Like this one is just got back from the Peace Corps in Kazakhstan. This one's a wonderful landscape architect. This one's the head of the Psychoanalytic Institute. You just never know. People bloom like flowers in committees. And that was one of the things that I wanted to express in this novel as well. And you are a Unitarian Universalist? I am. My mother was Jewish and my father was generally Protestant. I guess his family bounced between the Lutherans and the Methodists. Uh, when they went to church at all. And so they brought us up in the uh, Unitarian Church. I was familiar with the Unitarian Church, but not adding the Universalist part to it. So I did some Googling and I learned a lot, which I always enjoy when I'm reading a book as well. Oh, well, that's great. I'm glad that you Googled. It's a, it's, it's an interesting uh, merger, the Unitarians who believe in the unitary nature of God. God is one. God is it's anti-Trinitarian. God is not three. God is one and God is all. This is These are the old um, definitions. And then the universalists who believe that everyone is saved. Everyone is saved. And for a long time, it seemed that the two denominations, you know, sort of had a lot in common, very welcoming, very uh, liberal, 
but they didn't merge for a long time. And as I say in the in the book, there's a lot of reasons for that, but the quickest way to explain it is that Ralph Waldo Emerson was a Unitarian and P.T. Barnum was a Universalist. So there was a kind of a flavor and a class difference. Yes. And it made it interesting because, as I said, it was just something I wasn't as familiar with. Yeah. Thanks. What surprised you the most when you were writing this book? Hmm, That's a good question. I think uh, what you talked about before, how each one of the characters, they presented one way and, and then showed these different sides of themselves. And I think that uh, some of the characters really surprised me. I don't want to give spoilers here, but how Charlotte turned or how, how Adrian never, oh, he sort of stayed the same, but the fact that he stayed the same throughout, very sort of level-headed and distant, was a surprise to me because I thought that he was going to open up at some point. Did they all appear to you fully formed, or as you wrote, did they each sort of develop their own personality? I didn't know them. They came to me, and it really was like going into a committee for me where I looked around and I thought, who are these characters, and (laughs) are they interesting enough for a book? I mean, I was... I was sort of doubtful myself. It's like they walked into my head and onto the page, and and I had to get to know them in a very similar manner to how you get to know people when you're seeing them once a week, you know, in a in a committee setting. I love that. There's one character who never does what he says he's going to do. I had no idea that that was going to be one of his defining characteristics. It must have been fun to figure some of that out as you were going along. And then, as you said, sometimes you were really surprised and sometimes you weren't. Yeah, I think um, fun. (laughs) (laughs) Fun to hear about it. Maybe not so much fun as you're writing it, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting because I look back fondly on the writing process. But if you talk to any of my friends, they would say, you know, you were so tortured. (laughs) You were pulling your hair out. Exactly. Well, what do you hope your readers take away from the book? Oh, gosh. I just want them to I want them to enjoy enjoy the book the way that, you know, I love books. I read books for literary pleasure. What do I mean by that? I I like to be in the world. I like to think about new things. I like to take sides with characters. I like to care about the characters. I love beautiful sentences. And I like to just be carried out of my world. I just hope that they get a lot of literary pleasure out of out of the book. I think it give, that it will give them a few hours to think about, you know, the different issues I bring up, how to how to choose a leader, how to how to live a life that's uh, somewhat spiritually attuned to the world how to deal with really difficult people, uh, all of these things. I, I, I hope they think about that a little bit, but mostly I just hope that they get lost in the book and enjoy it. That's my favorite thing about reading is truly inhabiting another world, jumping into a completely different place in the world with new people and learning all about them. 
Exactly. Exactly. And I disliked all the humor because definitely I was laughing as I was reading. There were so many times when something just completely cracked me up. Oh, I'm so gratified to hear that. I was laughing sometimes when I wrote it. Yes, especially with Jenny, I'm sure. Yes. Well, what about your beautiful cover and then also the title? How did you all come up with the title? Well, I knew the title before I wrote the book. It's such a clean, perfect one-word title. As for the cover, I went to a small art show in Alhambra. Uh, It was a group show, and I had a friend who had a couple pieces in the show. But I walked in, and here's this big, beautiful painting of uh, a path winding through trees. It's painted with kind of uh, Renaissance precision. The trees are so beautiful. And I looked at it, and I, I knew the painter a little bit. Not well, but I knew the painter. And I thought, boy, that would make a great book cover for Search, The Winding Path. And so when my editor, Ginny Smith, asked if I had any ideas for the, uh, for the cover of the book, I sent them a picture of, of this painting. And, you know, I, I said, this will give you some idea. I, had, I never expected them to use it. But apparently... Not one person at Penguin said no to it. Everybody loved it. I love it too. From the first time I saw it and had the book pitched to me, I was like, what a fabulous cover. And I love it even more now that I know your story. And she was uh, delighted when, when they called her. They didn't let me tell her for the longest time until it all got approved. And then they called her and she said she was so excited she didn't sleep all night. That's wonderful. So do you own the painting now? Oh, I wish I did. Um, I actually don't have room for it. It's five by eight feet. Oh, wow. So it's large. Yeah. And it's in Astrid's living room. Well, yes, she's probably holding on to it now. (laughs) That's wonderful. Hopefully that also booms her business a little bit. Well, what about what you've read recently that you really liked? I tend to read classics. One thing that I really love is that I reread and I just reread, is A Glass of Blessings by Barbara Pym. It's also about a church, an Anglican church. Highly amusing, very funny. Barbara Pym has this quietly hilarious voice and view of humanity. So it's a book about a bored young housewife trying to figure out what to do with her life and how to be active in the church and how to find friends, which... um anybody who reads Search, that will sound somewhat familiar. Barbara Pym has always been a big influence on me. But that one does sound good. Yeah, it's really good. I'm teaching My Antonia by Willa Cather right now. And, you know, I've read it. This is probably my fourth or fifth time I've read it. But reading it very closely to teach it has just been such a revelation. It is such a great, solid novel, even though It has parts in it now that are very outdated. It's still so solid and luminous and um, inspiring, beautifully written. I've never read anything by her. I hate to admit that. Oh, well, you you have a treasure trove at your feet. I'll have to add that to my list as well to work my way through her books. Yes. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for joining me today in the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I loved Search, and I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you about it. Well, likewise, Cindy. Thank you so much. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. 
My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.